what's your first involvement with Willow and a cricket bat? I'm intrigued. Well, in that from side a child, of... from when my dad used to first started making or tinkering around with bats back in '75, '76. I can remember one of my earliest memories being at Bronte House School and uh, everybody else having Gunner Moors and Grey Nichols and I had a bat with my own name on it. Did you? So I was about 10 or 11 um, and that was one of the kind of the earliest. And what was the reaction? I imagine junior school cricket, that's quite a, quite a thing to have your uh, own personalised really. bat. You know, some, some lads were a little bit jealous of the fact, I suppose, and other lads yeah. were kind of, well... Yeah, but I like a you know more you know bigger known brand and yeah. you know what they see on uh, their idol using at the time on probably on the TV. So that's one of my earliest earliest recollections uh, of using it. And then you know obviously Dad ran the business until about two thousand two thousand and one, and then I left my employment that I was doing in the oil industry and okay. then came in and took over this in two thousand and one. And since then, we've really. Uh, Adopted a lot of time in planting uh, to get our. our Has that always stocks. been part of what Kepax has done? So have you always grown yes. willow for years and years? Yeah, yeah. I think my dad's kind of uh, vision was to have a business, a, 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 obviously a smaller business than uh, than Grey Nichols, because he used to use Grey Nichols when he was a pro in the northeast. Okay. Um, so he used to go down to the Grey Nichols factory at Roberts Bridge and obviously get his bats. Yeah and saw how they kind of set up their business uh, in very much that they're self-sufficient, that they can make the bats that they want from their own stock of trees so they don't have to be reliant on going anywhere else to buy their willow crafts. They, they, you know, they do it all in-house, which is pretty much what we do here. Yeah, and that's quite a um, specialist thing, isn't it? I suppose for people who don't know much about bat making, you've got the likes of J.S. Wright down south, where obviously they churn out a lot of class for a lot of people, both here and abroad. Yeah. But I mean, um, there's not many people doing what you do. Um, no, I think there's probably us, uh, Grey Nichols. Um, Newbury do it to a, a very small degree. I know that they've got a few of their own trees, but I think they've got uh, the kind of portfolio that we have access to. You know, we're just under the 4,000 tree level now. And where is that? Geographically, from here, mainly in the north, um, pretty pretty much from Worksop up to Beedale will be the the geographic. Uh, okay. In the main, the the bulk of them are within about a ten mile radius of here. Yeah. So um, we've got a, a plantation of five hundred at Aberford, uh, four hundred at Tockwith, um, Beedale's five hundred. And then the other sites are mainly, you know, kind of 100, between 100 and 150, 200 trees yeah. per location. Um, in the early days when my dad started planting, um, there's... Um, Sorry, go on. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, smaller parcels of trees of about anything from 40 to 120. Okay. Uh, but we've kind of did it on a, on a larger, more commercial scale. And... In terms of when you took over the business, and is it something you've personally always been interested in? You've obviously been surrounded by uh, the family business, that makes a lot of sense, but um, what was your driver to take that on? Because it's a responsibility um, when your dad was doing it. Um, well, at the time, he, he, he got ill and got diagnosed with Alzheimer's, so there was a choice of whether to carry this on, yeah. um, with, I suppose in relation to the legacy of what he created. Um, or let it just 
you know, die away. Yeah. Uh, and at the time, uh, my job with uh, with Total Oil was was a job where I spent a lot of time away from home. Mm-hmm. Um, and my uh, son was about two or three at that time. Um, and it was just an opportunity where it's a bit. It was a bit of a life change. Mm-hmm. That obviously running your own business is a lot tougher than working for a big multinational oil company um, and with different pressures but you know it's allowed me to um, work very locally to where I live I mean I live only about a mile away from here yeah um, so quality of life yeah and you're your own boss so you yeah. can you know pretty much you know you do what you need to do when you need to do it and then other times you can you know, you can go and do you know other things like take the kids to school and pick them up yeah. and stuff that I wouldn't have been able to do if I'd have stayed in that job that I was in. Yeah. Um, if you ask me now, did I make the right decision? Um, probably for quality of life, yes, I think. But financially, it's been you know, and it, and think always is when you're running your own business, it's yeah. uh, you know, it's a tough environment to be in as a as a small business. Yeah. Um, well, I can relate to that with different businesses, but there's crossover. Mine's more cricket journalism, obviously, but um, absolutely, you know, you work insane hours, um, but you have the flexibility, um, mm. you can drive the business whatever way you want, yeah. um, and that's kind of exciting, and it, I guess it, from your point of view, you've taken over something from your dad, um, and you can make it your own, or at least adapt it, and you've got your own ideas in terms, presumably, well, of the products and absolutely. what you want to do. One thing that we have done in the last 12 months is we've started to... Um, because uh, we manufacture our own clefts, obviously, um, we've adopted a much bigger cleft. We've now gone to what you call a supersized cleft, which uh, certainly JS writes who dominate the market, uh, and are probably supplying, I would think, eighty percent uh, of the world English willow okay. in the UK and abroad. Uh, their cleft size is is relatively smaller to ours, and what's that, what that's allowed us to do is to develop a range of bats um, that are much, much bigger profile than, than most of our competition. Um, and presumably that's based on the fact you're not just doing that as a gimmick, presumably there's demand there. I mean, you, you see it in the market anyway, you yeah. know, if you look, if you trace the, the sort of shape and profile of a cricket bat in the last 20 years, they're, yeah. they're not getting smaller, are they? No, uh, the big thing that people don't really realise is that 30, 40 years ago, when clefts were all dried by air. Um, they were making bats at that time that were looks-wise probably half, they looked half the size of what they are now, but they weigh the same. And that's simply because the moisture levels yeah. by air drying, you would only get to probably about anything between 12 and 15%. Mm. So the wood was a lot wetter, denser than it is now. And one thing that we've worked a lot on in the last two years is drying process in working out, we've done all sorts, how much air drying to do before going into the kiln, how long to leave them in the kiln, to what particular percentage to work them, to find out what size of bats they'll make and what weights. We've tried experiments with sauna kilns. Um, we've had our, our own kiln adapted for heat treatment so we can export to India, Australia. Mm. Um, without that, you can't do it. You can't get phytosanitary certificate uh, to be able to get through Indian or Australian customs, you have to have a phytosanitary proving mm, right. that you've heat treated your timber. Um, to the point now where we've pretty much nailed it to the 
point where we, I don't think now we could develop a bigger bat and hit a realistic weight. Yes. But we're hitting weights now of between 2.9 to 2.12 with bats with 50 mil edges. Wow. And to get to that stage um, is it's taken a lot of uh, you know a lot of trials to be able to do it. Don't think you can go any bigger. Well, you can. You can go to 55, 60 mil edges, but your bats aren't going to weigh two nine, two ten. Those bats are going to weigh, you know. In yeah, they're going to feel like bound. a tree trunk. Yeah. Um, and in terms of yeah, the science behind that um, is it experimentation? How do you because it, as you say, it's, there's no quick fix. You're learning. No, it's quite when you've got the equipment to do it. It's relatively easy. You know, we have air drying is obviously quite easy because you've just got the outside facilities. Uh, and the kiln is uh, is the main piece of equipment that you know wasn't around 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. So when a lot of bats, you know, ten years ago suddenly started coming in from India, the difference being that, that their profiles were different and those bats were lighter and bigger was the fact that in their climate the wood would dry out. Mm. So you know you have to be able to mimic what what the you know the vast majority of bats are coming in like and obviously where the demand is so you've got to kind of mimic the same sort of environment which is what we've done with the kiln you know the kiln can be operated at any temperature you want so when we put a batch into the kiln first of all they'll go in at 38 degrees and they'll stay at that for about two weeks and then it gets jumped up to 42 degrees for another week or two then it'll go to 45 and then it'll go to 48 and then generally that timber will come down to about eight to ten percent moisture okay and at that stage with the size of our clash you can make a bat at that moisture level that will hit those weights with that size really and in terms of uh, what you're seeing in terms of the demand for the bats um what's the reaction like because it is yeah it's a, a, uh, they, a step yeah i mean if you go back 12 months we developed a bat with 42 mil edge at the time it was one of the biggest on the market and the weights were hitting fine um, we then started producing supersized clefts and experimented on our shaping machine with different angles, different jigs and found a profile that we could achieve a 50 mil edge and still achieve a 29210 weight uh, and that simply is driven by um, how much you kind of shape the back with a concave cutter and at what angle okay. you know, which affects edge size and spine height yeah um, the only thing I can gauge it on um, on the demand is that when all of the uh, brand ambassadors have come in, the first class players, their reaction has been uh, one of amazement really? as to the size of bats that we're making in relation to pretty much most most of the bats that are out on the market um, and their balance. Yeah. Um, well, that's what I was going to make the point, I suppose, is the the challenge as a bat maker is not just to produce a, a bigger lump of wood. It's not that you know, oh, no. you're not being naive. No. Um, there may be the demand, and as we've talked about, there is that shift towards in a lot of cases a, a bigger profile. But mm. it's got to have the balance. You know, yeah. uh, if it feels like a tree trunk, then that's pointless. Yeah. So, and that's where the skill of the bat making comes in. Other than obviously the other processes like the well, drying. Yeah. First of all, you've got to have a good uh, relevant density cleft. Um, you've then got to press it mm. you know, individually till it gets to its optimum and each one that we produce is pressed individually 
So once I get to a point where I think that bat is actually at its prime, yeah. then it will be shaped, fitted and finished. Um, the other difference will be that once it's fitted, then there is still an element of draw knifing and spoke shaving that needs to happen, and that's when the balance will be, you know, will be uh, taken on board at that time to get the balance perfect for that one individual piece of wood. Mm. You know, so some might go with a low swell, but the balance is still good. Others will have a higher swell, depending on the actual work piece that you're working on at the time. Okay. Um, and in terms of the the team around you, what's your involvement in terms of? Are you strategic now? Or are you digging around with a draw knife? I mean, who are your? Have you got uh, a team around you for different elements of the business? Um, we're we're pretty lucky here that in relation all the way through from planting to finishing, everything's pretty much mechanised apart from um, obviously the draw knife and yeah. the spoke shaving aspect. Uh, but then we have profile sanders that. Once you've finished shaping, you go straight to the profile sanders, and whatever knife marks that have you know been created from your draw knifing and spoke shaving, just remove. Yeah. Um, so there's me and there's Chris Leaf, and you know we can produce anything up to a hundred bats a week, you know if we want to. Yeah. Depending on what else is going on in life. Uh, well, yeah, it depends <laughs> if we if we've got a yard full of uh, willow trunks then that will normally, everything else will stop. So we've got to make sure that we have a good stock of bats in at any one time. And we'll always have about 200 to 250 bats ready to go at any one time. Yeah, how do you make a piece of the market? Because it's very competitive. There's obviously other Yorkshire brands, there's all sorts of people, either individual, small companies, and the bigger brands themselves that obviously have massive budgets for all sorts of things. Um, is it making an impression locally to start with, building up that customer base and then yeah. growing it? How, how have you done that to it's, size of business? It's pretty much always been local. You local know, we're, we're, albeit it's surprising to know how well known we are throughout the UK and in various areas of the world, but mainly our market is the UK and the, and the North. Yeah. Um, and that's always been, our target market is probably, you know, league cricketers um, you know that we will produce pretty much everything that we produce is a player's bat in relation to the fact that we don't produce hard press bats that are designed to last forever mm. you know we'll produce bats that will pretty much go from ball one so if anything we're probably slightly softer press than most Okay. you know it's pretty well known that in, re in the retailing world bats from big brands um, are, are mass produced and to mass produce you can't individually press every single bat on its own you do what's called batch pressing so a batch of so many class will come through and then all get pressed the same fitted finished and off um, and that's pretty much the only way you can really drive you know huge volume yeah um, but that's not us and that's never going to be us um, and you know, our say our market is pretty much league cricket, and to drive that, you know, we've targeted various high-profile league players, mm. where we've kicked them out and sponsored them, and on the back of that, that's driven future sales. Yeah. Now we've gone up one level now to the first-class arena, mm. and fingers crossed we'll have uh, Graham Onions playing for England this summer. 
Um, now, obviously, he is a, a bowler. Um, but in relation to branding and brand awareness, if he gets into bat against any, you know, uh, country that's and it's a televised game this summer, then that's where you're going to get your exposure. Absolutely. But I suppose the big difference now, um, in the last twelve months to probably four or five years ago, is that social media is has now really taken off. So if that's you utilise Facebook, Twitter, you know things like that, um, you can you can drive uh, quite a lot of marketing for very little cost. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's with Cricket Yorkshire. Um, I use Twitter daily and there's obviously time involved, whoever's doing that, and you've got to produce content and you've got to not just fire off sales messages because no one wants to hear that. Um, but if you use it in the right way and you know the people react to that and, yeah. and, and get involved in what you're up to and, and then you've got your own audience and mm-hmm. you're building it that way um, so in terms of the first class players let me know who you've got and uh, yeah your ideas around those particular players because I, I guess as you're starting down that avenue the world is your oyster potentially uh, it's partly down to cost obviously and mm. but also the sort of players you want to attract so what was your thinking behind who you got and who have you got uh, the the professionals that we've taken on are pretty much pros that are in and around where we are, so pretty much surrounding our location. So you've got Durham, Yorkshire, Lancashire, Leicestershire, Derbyshire. I think the only one we haven't got is Notts. So, you know, that really, you know, strategically we've aimed at players that are not too far away from the base. Mm. So obviously when they start getting seen, when the season starts and people hopefully take notice of, of what they're using, yeah. then they know that it's not too far a distance to travel if they want to come and see what we do and, and what we make um, or go on to, uh, onto our website and look at the product. In terms of um, so the players, the ones that spring to mind are Graham Onions, Richard Pyra. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, have you got some of the Yorkshire Academy lads? Or? Yeah, Josh Shaw. Josh Shaw. Elliot Callis at Yorkshire, who's on the brink of breaking into the side. Um, Derbyshire, you've got uh, David Wainwright, uh, Tom Knight. Lancashire, you've got um, Aaron Lilly. Leicestershire, Ben Rain. And obviously, one of the England ladies in uh, Danielle Hazel. So, uh, uh, right. you know, we're kind of covering quite a wide aspect of. Yeah, it's a good portfolio of players across different counties and uh, different skills, I suppose. Well, um, it is, considering that last year we didn't have any. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Yeah, in terms of you as a business deciding to do that, um, you'll. We won't mention various brands, but essentially various brands have gone that route, plumbed in a lot of money, mm. uh, and either collapsed financially or struggled financially and not seen the benefit. Um, was that ever a worry, or is that ever a worry? Not to us now. Um, it would have been if we'd done it five years ago, but now it's different in relation to, you know, we've vastly increased our production of clefts to the point where the class side of the business probably is 70% of the turnover of the company okay. and 30% is bats and other related cricket products Yeah. so our kind of our, our main uh, product that we make is the, is the cleft which we 
obviously then utilise what we want for our own range and then sell uh, in bulk to uh, mainly to, to India. Mm. Um, so that's been quite successful in the last four or five years, which has put us in a position now uh, where we can start to look at pushing the brand more, uh, probably than we've ever done before. Obviously, from an economic point of view, um, there is uh, a lot more margin in a in a cricket bat than there is in a cleft. Um, but without within cricket, it works in a very simple way, and it's all about brand awareness. So if your brand is being seen and it's been seen in the hands of players that are successful, yeah, then you've got a chance of of being successful yourself as a manufacturer. Definitely. The other thing that's different is that. In the last three years, we've gone through one very wet summer, uh, which was a poor year for everybody, and then a big recession. And as a lot of bit of the bigger brands have found, um, you, you've got to balance your books in relation to what you're paying out for players um, against what you're getting back in sales. And there was an imbalance. You know, There was a lot of first-class cricketers that were... you know receiving very healthy retainers uh, for using a particular brand and after or during the recession I think uh, you know that turned around somewhat um, and it's a little bit different with us in that we're never going to have a huge portfolio of ambassadors using the product which is what we like to call them the brand ambassadors for us um, and the service they will get from us will be very one-to-one that they can come in and pick the bats that they want. They'll never be sent bats, you know, in the post and say, right, there you are, that's what you're getting. Yeah. You know, they all have the opportunity to come in and, and choose from, you know, a few hundred. Um, but there are always bats that come through that you know uh, are, you know, freak bats that might be the biggest bat that you've made that week and it might be the lightest. So, you know, you you know that maybe you know a rich pyra uh, might want a, a bat with a 50 mil edge you know to use in a t20 yeah. that's coming in at 29 210 um one thing that we have found is that even the, the 210s to 212s with the way that the bats are made and designed with the balance points is that they pick up relatively lighter than what their actual weight is um and cricket has changed now in relation to people are starting to move away from demanding a bat that must be to eight and will not look at anything else. And we found that when we, you know, give a customer half a dozen bats to choose from, but we won't tell them what the weight is. Yeah. And they'll just pick them up and go, well, you know, wow, that's that is light. And it might be two eleven. Yeah. And, you know, in your mind as a batter, it's you know, you just want to you want to go in about knowing that you've got a piece of wood in your hand that's going to score your runs. Yeah, and it and feels you, right to you. Yeah, if you're confident with what you've got in your hands, you'll be successful. If you have any doubt whatsoever that you haven't got the right bat in your hand, you're not going to be successful. It's as simple as that. So, I mean, we do put the weights on the bats, um, but very uh, subtly in, in relation to where it is. Um, and, you know, we do say to people... You know, if you absolutely insistent that it must be a particular weight, it will try and meet your, you know, your requirement. But, you know, here's half a dozen bats that are pretty much roughly around the sort of weight you're looking for. Yeah. Try them out, see what you think. Yeah. And I suppose moving on to the product development side, so what's your range for this year? I mean, we'll probably pick up bats and 
um, and what have you, but just to give people who may be listening to this later um, an idea, what's your range and what's the, how's the product and the bats developed this year? Everything that we've made in the last 12 months um, has, has all been on the Colossus uh, branding, which is you know, between 40, 48 and 50 mil edge. Um, and that will range in between 2, 210 and 212 unless a particular customer wants a, a real super heavy weight you know a 214 or a 3 pound we can cater for that um, but the, the vast majority of the market is, is it for us is in the 210 to 212 range um, and we have that under the, the Kipax Legend uh, branding and we also have it under the Wavex branding with the anti-vibration uh, handle that's uh, that's patented to us. Um, so it's the same blade, same characteristics, but the handle's different. Um, all the first class players will be branded under the Kipax um, logo on the basis that's who we are. You know, uh, Wavex is is a byproduct. It's a, it's another option. Yeah, that it's that a product have. innovation development. Yeah. Um, what I will say is that every single uh, professional that's using uh, the the bats under the Kipax logo are all with Wavex handles, although you won't see the Wavex branding on there. You can't, in the first class arena, you can't have um, a Kipax and, and Wavex branding on the same product. You, you're only allowed to have the manufa one manufacturers. So they'll all, but that's why they're all under the Kipax branding. But they all use the Wavex handle because they've all tried and tested it and prefer it. Do you think um, customers buying from you? Um the handle, I mean, it's part of the feel of a bat, so it is important. Mm. And you've obviously gone into um, product development and, uh, and done this innovation yourself, but your average customer, are they fussed that much about a handle? Um, well, last year, we sold probably two to one Wavex against a standard straight handle. Um, and as yet, as far as I know, nobody has used a Wavex handle and then gone back to a straight handle. Once they start using Wavex handles, they you know there is a marked difference in the feel when you hit a ball with a Wavex handle than there is with a straight, and it is the vibration dampening that that causes that. With having a ripple in the handle itself, it takes away that vibration in your top hand, so it doesn't get passed into your arm anywhere near as much as a straight handle will, and that's purely because it's a simple law of physics. It's yeah. Newton's law of physics. If you put an object, um, i.e., a wave configuration in the way of energy. It, it will slow as it goes up and down the ripples whereas the straight handle will just carry on yeah. so it's it's very simplistic in what it does but it, it it's very um, its results are staggering against a, a straight handle which you know, when we had it independently tested with Wavex in the States um, the, uh, the test proved categorically that the Wavex handle re not only dampens it redirects the energy so it kind of bounces back. So the actual points on the blade that were tested yeah. uh, in G-force, there was more G-force evident in the sweet spots of a Wavex bat than there was a straight handle bat. Yeah. But that's to be honest, that's not what we market it on. We market it on the fact that the feel of the bat is is significantly better than you know it, in any sport. If you have more power, it's a selling point. But cricket's slightly different. You know, you've you've also got to have a pretty good piece of wood, you know, to get that benefit as well. Yeah. And with the Colossus range, because of the size of the edge, 
all, all that's really done in relation to kind of bat development, the sweet spots have kind of uh, have increased horizontally across the bat rather than vertically. But with a very steep spine, you, you obviously your sweet spot will run pretty much behind that spine. But when you actually reapportion the weight to the sides, you find that your sweet spot is is increased sideways, and that things like bat twist are a lot less on a bat <clears throat> with big edges than they are with a bat with small edges because the main meat is behind the spine area. So a shot with a small edge, you will get a bat twist. A bat with a big edge, you don't get anywhere near as much. Yeah. So you get a lot better response. And I suppose moving on to your own cricketing, um, who are you playing for nowadays? How many um, thousands of runs have you scored? I only make a decision on what I'm going to do pretty much around this time of the year as to whether I'm going to play another year. <laughs> Um, and I will play this year at Carlton. I've played at Carlton for the last three or four years, uh, as does my colleague Chris. Um, and you know, at my at my age, I just take every year as it comes and then see how I get on, and see if my body's still still up to it. Do you do nets? Because I just I've just finished my <laughs> second net. The first net of the winter, you have that horrendous, you know, normally a day's gap where. You think, oh, have I got away with it? And then the pain strikes, and you think, wow, that's quite. I've had I had one net about four weeks ago up at Steve Lawrence's at uh, Tadcaster, and um, uh, with my son, um, and I, you know, we did we had a net for about an hour and a half, and uh, there was just two of us, so I did quite a lot of bowling, and I, yeah, I did feel it two days after, um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't feel any kind of injuries or no dodgy knees or yep. shoulders or anything like that. Nothing so. snapped. No, <laughs> no. So well, that's good. Um, and what's your background in Yorkshire club cricket then? Which other clubs have you played for down the years? Um, I've played mainly uh, Harrogate in the Yorkshire League, and then I played at Methley. Um, I then had a, a year at Renthorpe, um, and then Carlton. Mm. So. A few clubs, but I won't say not many in comparison to, no. to some guys. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, and what? Yeah, what's your experience of Yorkshire club cricket in terms of what you like about it? What's um, you're obviously in the business side, and and you obviously serve the local area, and yeah. as you say up the north. But um, just intrigued as to what you enjoy about club cricket. Well, like anybody else, I think most people that play club cricket enjoy the, the dressing room environment. You know, the you know the uh, the crack with the lads and stuff like that is 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 always one of the main things. Um, as I get older, I think that the leagues are slow in adapting to the the rate of change in the current game, and it's a shame that. You know, it's the league structure is pretty much the same as it has been for donkey's years. The cup competitions are pretty similar, although in, you know most leagues have adopted a T20, but mainly as an evening league or to replace evening leagues, um, which to me is is the wrong route. Uh, I think that league cricket should mirror as much as possible what is seen on the TV, and that's mainly for the game's growth within kids and. Certainly, there's a, there's a, an argument now that the league should run for a proportion of the year, and then there should be a rest period of about four weeks, and then it should go into T20 for say a four week period. Um, so you'd have a rest period. Yeah, well, I'd go I'd go into a T20 that four week block, say in July when you hopefully the weather's going to be at its peak. 
you would have a T20. Um, and then you could run that. You could still have your League Cups on the Sundays, which is normal. But the T20 could be on a Saturday where you play maybe two or three games against another two or three sides. Yeah. And then do it on a, a round robin, you know, like a UEFA Champions League basis. And then you go through to finals day. Um, I think that, you know, the local business would be interested in getting involved in that. Certainly local media would be interested in, in, in doing it. Um, I have heard rumours that, that certain leagues are looking at doing these kind of things, but I haven't seen any evidence of it yet. Um, and, you know, having a 16-year-old son myself, you know, when you speak to him in relation to what he likes and dislikes about the game, and speaking to other, you know, mates of his, it, you know, the, the big thing that puts them off is the time spent playing the game you know a 50 over game is going to be 12 o'clock finishing at half seven eight um, and it's a whole day event and everything else in life is becoming faster and shorter yeah. cricket has to keep up with that or else these kids will you know and I've experienced it with my own lad who's gone more down you know the, the rugby league route because it's a you know it's a 80 minute game and it's not an all day event that's an interesting one because I know the Yorkshire Cricket Board and uh, leagues around, well certainly in Yorkshire and across the UK actually, are, are wrestling with that issue because, as you say, people, um, time's precious, people are busy and cricket's always taken as long as it's taken mm. but I think there are, you know, the world has changed and a lot of people are sort of having second thoughts about can I commit to a whole day or possibly a weekend of Absolutely. cricket. You know, Absolutely. And whether you look at changing start times, whether you look at a shorter amount of overs, there are lots of things you can do, but I think, uh, and there'll always be those clubs and leagues and players that want to play as much cricket and will, you know, always do that and that that's fine, that's great and that's a part of what the game is, but I think you've got to, you've got to adapt and then think about those other people, like you say, who are maybe only want to play two-thirds of a day and then go off and do something with the, the evening. Well, I think the issue is, is that, there's too many league structures that are, are driven and hold themselves back by their history um, in relation to what they've been over the years and, they, and, and they're trying to protect that history. But that's a very short-term... What is it? For want of a better word, is it, it's a very short... In this day and age, that's a short-term view. In the long-term view has got to be adapting to attract the young you know, kids... You know, I, there's plenty of clubs around here where their junior memberships are thriving, but come to 16, 17, all of a sudden, yeah. they just stop playing. And the reason for that, in my mind, is that they don't... There's other things they'd rather be doing on a Saturday than spending all day playing cricket. And when they're young like that, you know, <clears throat> it's rarely that they would come into a, a first team in a Premier League or in a in one of the bigger leagues in the county, and be uh, a main player. I can remember it when I first started playing at 16 years old at Harrogate, and there was my dad in the side, Jim Love, my brother, um, you know, a very high quality overseas, and I didn't expect, you know, to bat and bowl all day in in that. You know, you accepted that. These days, kids don't, and they won't accept it because they think that. Well, if I'm coming into play, I want, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to do something. And in the current format, that's not possible. 
So you have to change it. You have to be able to adapt to it to keep their interest. And, you know, it, it hasn't happened yet. In relation to me and my business, it's critical because if, if that trend continues or gets worse, then it ultimately will affect my, my business in relation to branded product yeah. um, because those, those are your potential customers. And if they're not playing the game, you've got to look at other ways of, of forging a living. Yeah, you do, and and as you say, if you you know a certain section of your audience um, is dropping off, I mean it's a challenge for obviously a lot of clubs and governing bodies and, and all sorts. Of that particular age is a difficult one because, as you said, a drop off's marked, mm. um, and how people deal with that. But I do think they need to do something. I think you know uh, whatever you come up with and try, give something a go. And there are things. I mean, I've played and written about Last Man Stands, which is a sort of T Twenty innovation with different rules where it speeds up the game. Everyone's involved, and that won't be for everyone. Uh, and that's not the only answer. But there's lots of different things you can try, obviously. Um, but as you say, there's a lot of history and just to take the the leagues around Yorkshire and mm. and that should never be forgotten always celebrated nothing against that at all but as you say you've got to move with the times and um, it'll be interesting possibly in the next couple of years as to what change if anything comes in I guess well there's a lot of clubs that are disappearing and as the club you know, I think it's the same for every league as the number of sides and clubs disappear then it even stacks up the argument to do something different even more if you haven't got as many clubs it's easier to actually not have, you know, you might not have 12 sides in your Premier Division. You might go to 10, you might go to 8. But what it should do is improve the quality yeah. of the cricket. But when you've got fewer clubs, it does become easier, or it should become easier, to be able to do things like, you know, split the summer up into a, a league structure, a T20 structure, and still have your League Cups and things like that on, the, on Sundays. Um, obviously, you've got other elements like the Black Sheep, uh, tournaments on, on Sundays heavy woolen you can still do those uh, but it's the Saturday aspect of where you've got, you need to keep bringing these players through and to bring them through you need to make it exciting and innovative for them that they, you know, they want to be part of that and you know, at the moment it's still pretty much you know, Saturday, league game 50 overs all day do that throughout the summer league cup and some T20s on an evening. And it's, it's really the evening aspect that's vastly changed. I can remember playing at Harrogate and, and playing evening league there 10, 12 years ago, and it was vibrant. And, you know, I speak to some of my old mates over there now, and, you know, the sides that just don't do it anymore, they just dropped out, even like big sides like Harrogate. You know, they, they just can't get players yeah. because people's demands are a lot different now. So you have to change. You have to be able to have something, an alternative offer. So, a final question, I guess, picks that up quite nicely. Uh, if you cast your mind forward five years, mm. where would you like Kipax Cricket to be, and what would it be doing? Um, I'd like it to be kind of a, a northern base Grainicles, I think. That you know, you know, self-sufficient, produce high-quality bats like like Greys do, uh, and and Greys have always kept the the ethics. Behind what they do, but they but their innovation is very good. Um, but they've never forgotten that what it takes to make a really good product. Um, and you know, as time goes on, as the trees that we've planted 
you know, get bigger and bigger and bigger, we should be in a position where we can, you know, we can achieve that. To what level, you know, I don't know. It's um, depends on how much control, I suppose, you 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 know, you have. It's the bigger the business gets, it's uh, um, you. I suppose you have to let go of some of the control elements to and and bring in more people to be able to do various aspects of it. I haven't really thought of that. I can't. I'll you know. That's I'll an interesting. Yeah, take that on board. That's when it happens. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting one, uh, and one I suppose that mirrors my own business because I do ninety percent probably of the writing, all of the other elements of the business. But as it grows, you want to um, take on more people and do more things. But the, as we've talked earlier about running your own business, there's that mm. element of having to trust and and give over control to other people. Yeah. And yeah. if you've got your name behind it or Obviously, you have. Then, um, yeah, that's that's a leap of faith. Risk and reward. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> well, here's to risk and reward. Anyway, and thanks for talking to me. Pleasure.